Well, guys, we're going to go ahead and get started. Sorry to interrupt y'all's uh, conversations, but we are just going to go ahead and get started because we have a lot of ground to cover tonight. So sorry that Dr. Nathan Finn is not up here. Y'all's professor got replaced with Mr. Rogers, so you'll just have to be okay with that for tonight. But uh, my, for those of you guys for real who don't know me, uh, my name is Blake. I am one of the residents with the... What are we calling this thing? The Established Network, right? With the Established Network. And so I'm filling in for Dr. Finn tonight. We're continuing going through the Christian story. But before we do that, I just want to go ahead and read our introductory statement, the one that we read every single week, as just a reminder. And it kind of just sets the groundwork for why we do this. Why do we exist as the Institute? So let me go ahead and read that statement for us. The Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist Church to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. This fall, we're spending 12 weeks studying the Christian story. As you guys know, it's somewhat of a biblical theology, and a couple weeks ago, Dr. Finn explained exactly what that was. And last week, we began a four-week survey of the Old Testament with the study of the Pentateuch. And if you guys recall from last week, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy. And this week, we're going to survey the historical books. And so when I say survey, I mean exactly the way that Dr. Finn talked about last week. It's going to be a very, very like 30,000 foot overview right? We're not going to have time to, unfortunately, get into any of the weeds or any of the details or anything like that, but this is just a quick overview of the historical books. And so I have just one request before we begin. I know that the pattern that Dr. Finn has kind of set up is kind of like, let's talk about a section, and then if anybody has questions, let's address those questions and then move on. There are so many sections, though, tonight, and there's so much to get through that I would just request for us to save questions until the very end. So if you have a question, don't just like let it pass by and forget about it. Write it down, and then we'll try to address those questions at the end. But just because we have a lot of material to cover, I just want to go through it in a way to where we're like covering all the material instead of like we've got so much that we haven't addressed. So as we discussed last week, the first five books of the Bible have oftentimes been treated as one literary unit. And that we have called the Torah, the law, the books of Moses, or as you guys taught, called it last week, the Pentateuch, the five books. And so in this next section, we're going to be going over what's called the historical books. So this section of scripture, this section of the Old Testament, it tells one unified story, just like all the rest of scripture, but sometimes from different but complementary perspectives. So that's, that's important to note that it's different but complementary perspectives. So you might, as you're reading through the Old Testament, through the historical books, you're going to see a lot of the same events covered, especially in 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, like going through those, you're going to see a lot of the same material covered, but it's going to have a slightly different perspective, but that perspective isn't contradictory to the first perspective. That different perspective is complementary, so it's re related to the other narrative, just telling a little bit of a different story, if that makes sense. So, 
this section is not a single literary unit like the Pentateuch. Instead, it's like a collection of books. And that collection of books has been written by several authors over the period of like a thousand years. And what amazes me, though, about that is the fact that even though this has been written over a thousand years, written by a bunch of different authors, most of which you'll find out tonight are anonymous, even though all of these kind of things go into it, it still tells one unified and cohesive story that is all about God. And so that's, that's one of the biggest things that I want us to draw from tonight. There's a lot of different themes and a lot of different um, details in terms of the situations that these books come out of and the way that they're written, but they all still tell one unified story that is all about God. So according to the SV Study Bible, the historical books tell the story of one, Israel's entry into Canaan under Joshua's leadership. So if we remember, Moses was not able to enter Canaan. And at the end of the Pentateuch, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies outside of Canaan. He looks, he gets to see the promised land, but he doesn't actually get to enter into it. And so Moses becomes Israel's leader and he leads them into Canaan. Second, is that it tells the story of Israel's life in the promised land under the judges and the transition to kingship. Third, the division of the nations into two rival kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and then what life was like in both of those kingdoms. Fourth, the downfall and exile of each kingdom, extremely tragic point in Israel's history. Fifth, the life during the exile, and then six, Judah's return from exile. So in English Bibles, there are 12 historical books. The books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. That's all the first and seconds. If you guys get that song, I don't know if you guys memorize, you know, the books of the Bible that way, but I did. Anyway, um, then there was Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So these are not like modern, it's important for us to know that these are not like modern works of history where we're chronologically, you know, looking at all the events and trying to look at it from like a, a distant kind of perspective, you know, one that's not trying to, be, trying to be unbiased and just look at the historical facts. Instead, this is actually giving theological interpretations of the past that are meant to demonstrate God's sovereignty over all nations and his ongoing presence among his chosen nation, that's Israel, as he remains faithful to his promises and his covenant, despite Israel's continual drifting into sin, especially the sin of idolatry. So let us remember that as we are reading the Old Testament historical books, let's remember that these are theological interpretations of history. The author is trying to give a theological message to his audience. It's not some kind of unbiased work that's going to give you just the chronological details. It is telling us something about God and something about his character, something about his nature. So um, before we get into the details of the books, let me just take a moment to pray for us. Lord, we want to thank you for the fact that you are a good and righteous God, as we are going to see as we dive into the details of these books. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have given us your word and that it comes 
in the Old Testament and the New Testament and that it comes to us in 66 books that we can pick up the Bible and we can read it. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us to just figure out what truth is on our own, but you have given us truth. Your word is truth. So Lord, help us to see your word as precious tonight. Help us to see the historical books as precious tonight. Help us to love you more as we dive into these books. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the historical books, let's start with Joshua. So the name Joshua comes from the main figure of the book, the main character. It's all about Joshua and about his life and about his people. And the name Joshua means Yahweh delivers, right? So Jesus is actually a Greek equivalent for that Hebrew name, for the Hebrew name Joshua. And so even though the authorship is anonymous, many Jews actually believe that Joshua himself wrote the book. He may not have necessarily written every single part of the book, kind of like we talked about last week with Moses, Moses writing on his own death and stuff like that. I mean, you know, the Lord can do whatever he wants, and so he could have given him a prophetic vision about his own death or anything, but we just believe that, that it's likely that Joshua did write it, though maybe not every single sentence that was in the book, but we believe that all of it is inspired, right? So it was likely written sometime between 1400 and 1350 BC. The chapters 1 through 12 focus on the conquest of Canaan, and then chapters 13 to 24 focus on the division of the land um, among the tribes of Israel. So Joshua includes many key themes, but the ones that are listed on your handout and the ones that we're going to go through really quickly are as follows. God's fulfillment of his land promise to Abraham and later generations. So we see in Genesis 12, God appears to Abraham and he promises Abraham that you are going to have many, many offspring. And those offspring are going to inherit a land that I'm going to give you, right? And so now we're finally seeing a little bit of a fulfillment of that as Joshua and the people of Israel enter into Canaan and then they start dividing up the land that they have conquered and we see that God's land promise to Abraham is being partially fulfilled right here. So next theme is that God as divine warrior, um, God is the divine warrior who conquers his idolatrous enemies. God gives grace, um, excuse me, God gives his people rest from the wilderness wanderings from their enemies. So this is actually, rest is actually a really, really huge theme all throughout scripture. Even as I was just reflecting today on, in a different part of scripture, just reflecting on the fact that like rest is a huge theme. In our sin, there is a huge lack of rest. We are constantly trying to work to get out of the brokenness that's in this world. And what Jesus does is he comes and he provides the ultimate rest, right? He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? And not just that, but the author of Hebrews later on will talk about how there is a rest for anyone who would believe in Jesus. 
And so this is hinting at that, God giving his people rest from these wilderness wanderings and from their enemies. And then also God's grace is available even to those who are not Jews. This is a theme that we're going to see in almost all of these historical books. And what's so profound about it is that, yes, God does call out the people of Israel distinctly. You know, God comes to Abraham specifically and he says, your people are the people who I'm going to bless. But he blesses the people, he blesses Abraham's offspring so that they might be a blessing to all the other nations, right? And so God doesn't just care about Israel. He cares about all the nations. He cares about all the nations in the world. And we see that in a character like Rahab who appears in the book of Joshua. Rahab was not a Jew. She was a Canaanite. But we know how the story goes, how she hides the spies. And ultimately, what's really, really amazing about the story of Rahab is that Rahab is even included in the genealogy of Jesus, right? So the Lord blessed somebody who was outside the camp of Israel, outside of the, the genetic lineage of Abraham, and yet this woman was even connected to Jesus himself. She was in his genealogy in Matthew chapter 2. So next thing we'll move on to, again, save those questions, whatever questions you have about this book or any of the other ones, please write those down, save them to the end. So, next book, Judges. The name Judges comes from the emphasis on individual judges whom the Lord raises up to deliver Israel from their enemies. So, judges weren't legal officials. They were more like military leaders. So, think of it less of like a Supreme Court justice or something like that, and think of it more like Douglas MacArthur, you know, somebody who was a general who was seeking either retribution or um, seeking to rescue his people out of a very difficult circumstance. That was, that was the point of the judges. So whenever we read about Israel's judges, let's kind of look at that, th- look at them through that lens. Again, not really like a a legal official, but more of a military leader, right? So the authorship of Judges is anonymous, but many Jews believe that Samuel himself was the author. Um, And based on the date of events, as well as archaeological evidence, Judges could have been written as early as the mid-1300s, but no later than the mid-1000s BC. So chapters 1 to 3-6 focus on Israel's drifting into unfaithfulness after Joshua's death. Chapters 3-7 to 16-31 focus on Israel's ongoing and escalating cycle of unfaithfulness during this period. This is a really big common pattern that we see all throughout the book of Judges. And then chapters 17 to 21 focus on Israel's reaching its lowest depths in terms of it's unfaithfulness, it's idolatry. And by the way, if anybody has read the book of Judges recently, you know that it's, it's kind of a hard book to read, especially toward the end. And I don't mean hard as in like difficult, but hard as in like you read some stuff in there and it kind of makes you squeamish, you know, like, like how could Israel become like go this low? And what we see is one of the key themes just 
on this entire thing is that Israel is trapped in a cycle of sin because everyone did what was right in his own eyes instead of submitting to God as their king. And so we can think about how Israel had just come into the land. The previous book, Book of Joshua, they finally get into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and then within like one, maybe two generations, within that period of time, you've got Israel going way off the rails. You know, how quickly could they forget about the God who just rescued them out of Egypt? How quickly could they forget? But then, before we give Israel such a hard time, we need to think about ourselves, right? How quickly do we forget the promises of God? That's a difficult thing to wrestle with, but it's something that we need to be wrestling with as we're reading throughout the book of Judges. So another key theme is that despite their sin, God remained faithful and he raised up judges to deliver Israel. And then deliverance was temporary and that Israel needed a faithful king who could rule on God's behalf. We see the book of Judges and it can kind of sort of be a little bit depressing because it's just constantly, you know, a downward spiral that we're seeing. And it can be really, really heavy at times, but it points to Israel's need for a king, somebody who is going to rescue them, not just temporarily, but somebody who's going to rescue them permanently. And so I'm just going to really quickly on this board, I don't actually know if you guys over there can see this, but I'm going to write it down anyway, that this is kind of it. One of the themes talks about the cycle of the judges, and I just thought it would be kind of helpful to just show you what that is, just to kind of visualize it. And so this is coming from the ESV study Bible that uh, Dr. Finn talks about a lot. So you have apostasy, which really is just sin and rebellion. You have apostasy, and that's kind of how Israel starts out. They rebel against God. And then the next thing we see in Judges is we see servitude. So they are enslaved by some kind of foreign nation. Then we see supplication, which is Israel crying out to God, asking for salvation. And then we see salvation. God raises up a judge and the judge saves Israel from out of their turmoil, out of their hardship, and then we just kind of begin that pattern all over again. And so that's the pattern that we see all throughout the book of Judges. And so it creates this spiral that's ultimately a downward spiral into just mess and tragedy and sin. And it's kind of a, it's, it's a heartbreaking book, but it rightly should be because it shows us our need for a Savior. Left to their own devices, left to what's right in their own eyes, they're going to do what they want to do. And ultimately, that's not glorifying to God. So next comes the book of Ruth. So the name Ruth comes from the main character of the book, as with the book of Joshua. And the authorship is anonymous. Um, Ruth was written after 1000 BC because it included David's genealogy. And that's really important to notice, too. What we see in the book of Ruth, we see David's genealogy. So that means that likely it was written after 1000 B.C. Chapter 1 focuses on Ruth and Naomi's tragic backstory. Chapters 2 to 3 focus on Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field, his favor toward Ruth, his desire to marry her. And chapter 4 focuses on Boaz, Boaz's redemption 
of Ruth through marriage and the multi-generational blessings that resulted. And once again, you can look on your sheet and you can see the key themes. Once again, a key theme is God's love for people from all nations. We look in the book of Ruth and we see people who are connected to Israel in somewhat of a loose way, but who also there's, there's Canaanite blood mixed in there. You know what I'm saying? Like, so what, what's really great about this theme of God being for all nations is the fact that missions was not a brand new idea that was in the New Testament, right? Instead, God's heart has always been for the nations. God's heart has been for, for the nations from the very beginning, right? Abraham's people were blessed so that they could be a blessing. Another theme is the beauty of family faithfulness to God. Um, one of the biggest themes in this book is that of the kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer who, because of grace, loves the unloved and thereby brings blessing to the cursed. So just like Rahab, Ruth was also a key figure in the genealogy of Jesus. And so why am I pointing these out? The, the reason why I'm pointing out these genealogies is because the entire grand narrative of Scripture is looking forward to the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. We see that back in Genesis 3.15. Every figure in Scripture who shows himself as a godly man is one that the original readers of the text would have looked at and they would have asked, is this him? Is this the one? Is he the Messiah, the one who would crush the servant's head? And it's not until Jesus that the answer to that question is an emphatic yes, right? Every twist and turn in these historical narratives in the Bible are getting closer and closer to Jesus. And so I don't want us to miss these themes. So let's move on to First and Second Samuel. The name Samuel comes from, again, one of the main characters of the books. Um, and this might seem strange to us that Samuel is kind of the main character of the book or the one that the book is named after. If anything, we think that it would be like the book of David, right? You know, because, I mean, he is kind of the character that runs throughout all the books. But think of Samuel as the key transition character, the one who moves Israel from the pattern of the judges that we saw in the book of Judges to the kingship, right? So the authorship, like usual, is anonymous, <laughs> though it likely incorporated records kept by Samuel himself. It was likely written over a period of a century or two, but there's no real consensus on what that date is. And so 1 Samuel 1 through 8, talk about the story of Samuel. He's the last of the judges. 1 Samuel 9 to 31, focus on the rule of King Saul, who was not a good king. He was an evil king. And so it also talks about his downfall and the rise of King David. And then 2 Samuel focuses all on the reign of David as king, along with, sadly, David's also tragic downfall and then death, right? So along with Abraham and Moses, David is one of the most important figures in the entire Bible, one of the most important figures in the New Testament. And it's also what one of the most popular names that was given 
to Jesus, right? What was, what was one of the most popular names given to Jesus in the Gospels? The son of David. Exactly. So, key themes, talking about those again. Israel needed a faithful king who could rule on God's behalf. So, the reason why this is important is because the judges, like we just talked about before, the judges were not a sustainable government, right? Israel would get themselves into a mess, and then they needed somebody to rescue them out of it. God raises up a judge, and then they get into that same mess again. You know what I'm saying? They need a more permanent ruler. So they needed a faithful king, a king who could rule on God's behalf. Something we also see is that Saul was not faithful. And so David was chosen by God instead. Saul was Israel's chosen king, right? But David was God's chosen king. And that's the difference between the two. The reason why Saul did not work out and the reason why David did. David was a man who was after God's own heart, but he was still a sinner who needed God's grace. The biggest downfall we see is in 2 Samuel 11, where David, the David and Bathsheba incident happens, and it paints David in a very, very bad light. Um, but what is good about this is that it's... It's really the same as us, right? I think, I think what is helpful about a lot of these characters is that we can't really look at any character in the Bible, except for Jesus, <laughs> we can't look at any character in the Bible with rose-colored glasses, right? We have to see them for who they really are, realistically. They weren't all bad, and they also weren't all good either. They were pretty complicated, like a lot of us, right? And so that's important for us to know as we, as we are reading through the historical narratives. Um, God's forever kingdom will be fully realized through a descendant of David. So once again, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, we're seeing this pattern go all the way back from the Garden of Eden till now, you know, and we're looking for that seed of the woman who is going to crush the serpent's head. And in 1st and 2nd Samuel, it makes clear, God makes clear that whoever that seed of the woman is, he is going to come from David's lineage. So <clears throat> Jerusalem was set apart as the center of the Davidic kingdom and the temple would become the place where God was uniquely present among his people. If you guys remember from last week, last week, we're talking about the Pentateuch. They had the tabernacle, right? It was essentially a temple that was on wheels or a temple that was mobile, right? But now in Jerusalem, that's where the temple stays. And that's where God's unique presence descends and Israel pays homage, pays sacrifice to him. So let's move on to the book of the Kings. So the name Kings comes from the emphasis on Israel's monarchy from 970 to 586 BC, after the time of Saul and David. The authorship is anonymous, though many Jews believe that Jeremiah wrote about the kings. First and second kings were written sometime after the recorded events, but, no, but likely no later than 330 BC when the Persian Empire ended. So 1 Kings 1 to 11 focus on the reign of Solomon. 
Then 1 Kings 12 to 22 focused on the various kings after the nation was divided, as well as the ministry of Elijah. 2 Kings 1 through 10 most likely, um, or excuse me, mostly focus on the ministry of Elijah. So just so you guys know, in your copy of the notes, it might say a statement like, 1 Kings 12, 22, focus on the various kings after the nation um, and then, or after the nation was upon the ministry of Elijah. Do you guys have that in your notes? So it's actually supposed to say that it focuses on the various kings after the nation was divided as well as the ministry of Elijah. And then it says 2 Kings 1 through 10 mostly focus upon the ministry of Elisha. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, cool. So what, what it's supposed to say is 1 Kings 12 through 22, focus upon the various kings after the nation was divided, as well as the ministry of Elijah with a J. And then 2 Kings 1 through 10, mostly focus upon the ministry of Elisha with an SH. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. 2 Kings 11 through 22, focus on the final days of both Israel and Judah before each kingdom is exiled. And so the themes that we see in the kings, um, first off, is that the Lord is sovereign once again over all nations, right? All nations. But he does have a special relationship with Israel and especially Judah. And why do we think that is? Whenever Jesus comes, he comes from the or he is called the Lion of the tribe of? Right, right. And so he has a, an extremely special relationship with Judah. And then the Lord is the only God above all other gods, and all other gods are idols. So Scripture makes this really clear, especially in the Psalms. You'll see David writing a psalm, and he'll say that these gods are actually false gods. They have no power to them. They have eyes, but they cannot see, ears, but cannot hear, mouths, but cannot speak. They have hands and feet, but they can't work to save you, you know, that they are essentially nothing. And then the New Testament goes on to elaborate on that further to say that physically speaking, yeah, they are powerless. They're just like carved out blocks of wood that these people are worshiping. But that there is a certain amount of spiritual power because it's actually these gods that they're worshiping, these false gods that they're worshiping are actually demons, right? But even in comparison to God, their spiritual power is like nothing, right? And if you trust and believe in God, then God's power greatly supersedes any other false god that you could be worshiping. So the Lord alone is worthy of worship on his terms. That's extremely important. A lot of times, and I'm not going to get off on a rabbit trail here for the sake of time, but I think oftentimes we can, especially in our modern culture, we can be so individualistic that we can say, you know, I'm going to worship God how I feel like I can worship God, right? I'm going to worship Him how, whatever way makes me comfortable. I've even got friends and even family members who have said that I don't feel comfortable in a church. I just feel like I'm going to worship God in the comfort of my own home, right? But that's missing the point. We don't worship God however we want. We worship God on His own terms, orderly, right worship. 
before God. And that's one of the key themes in this book. And so sin, and especially idolatry, leads to division among God's people. Another theme is that God will keep his covenant promises to Abraham and to David. In spite of Israel and Judah's sin, and in spite of their also downward spiral that we see kind of continuing on through the book of Judges, God is still faithful to keep his covenant promises. He's faithful to keep his promises to Abraham, faithful to keep his promises to Moses, faithful to keep his promises to David, and he is committed to the people of Israel. And so then the last main thing that we see is that repentance leads to forgiveness and possibly wider renewal. I actually called up Jeremy right before this to see if he could help me try to interpret, I guess, what Dr. Finn meant by this. And he could correct us. So Leah, if he corrects us, let me know. But I think what he means by that, we think what he means by that, a a pretty good guess, is that that wider renewal is this idea that, that the kingdom will flourish more if they repent and turn back toward God. Does that make sense? So it's, so it's all about the flourishing of God's people. So again, I'll have to ask him about it, but, so don't hold me to it. So next, let's move on to First and Second Chronicles. So the name Chronicles refers to the work the author did in recounting much of the same stories as 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. But again, this is where this complementary perspective comes from, but from a complementary perspective that gives greater emphasis on the Davidic covenant. The authorship is anonymous, though many Jews believe either Ezra or his followers wrote them, and possibly also Ezra and Nehemiah. So they were possibly written later than 1st and 2nd Kings, though they could not, or they would have also been completed by 330 BC. 1st Chronicles 1 through 9 focuses upon the genealogical account of Israel's tribes. 1st Chronicles 10 through 29 focus on, <clears throat> focus on the unified kingdom under David and Solomon. And the 2nd Chronicles talks about Judah's history from the divided kingdom to the exile to the restoration to the land under the Persian king Cyrus. First and Second Chronicles includes many of the same themes that we see in Samuel and Kings, but with special emphasis on these ones that are listed in your handout. So they talk about the uniqueness of Israel as a people in God's redemptive purposes. So once again, we just see that God is involved in the whole world, but he is especially involved with the people of Israel, right? The importance of the Davidic covenant for Israel and eventually, say it with me, all nations, right? This is, again, just a theme that we see all throughout the historical books. And then the centrality of the temple in Israel's identity, worship, and monarchy. So I just want to give you guys a really, really quick, brief explanation of something that I thought is really cool about the book of Chronicles. So in a Hebrew Bible, Chronicles actually comes at the very end. And the reason why it comes at the very end is because, yes, it is kind of rehearsing a lot of the same things that we see in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, but it kind of zooms out on the narrative a whole lot. You'll read Chronicles, and you might think, wow, this feels like really positive in compared to Samuel and Kings. It doesn't even really mention any 
kind of wrongdoing that David did during his kingship. You know, he looks pretty, pretty good. But what it's doing is it's zooming out and looking at the grand narrative of all of Scripture and really showing how God is leading his people to know him and relate to him better. And the reason why Chronicles comes at the end is because it's summarizing everything that you've read so far. So you read through the Pentateuch, you've read through the prophets, the Psalms, all the wisdom literature, all the historical books, and then you get to the very end in the Hebrew Bible and you've got Chronicles that's retelling the story all over again, specifically showing God's theme throughout the entire thing. And then what's really, really cool is you get to the very end of Chronicles and it ends in the Hebrew on an incomplete sentence. That's really, really weird, right? We get to the very end and King Cyrus is given a decree and he says, if anybody who worships God and is filled with the Spirit of God, let him go up. And that let him go up at the very end is an incomplete sentence in the Hebrew. So it's literally like a to be continued, dot, 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 you know? And so what's really cool about this is we see, all right, let that person go up. And then what do we see throughout the Gospels? We see Jesus, right? Jesus living a perfectly holy life, dying a perfect death. He is going up to Jerusalem where he knows that he's going to face the cross, right? And then he carries the cross up to Mount Calvary, right? And then he dies on behalf of the people. Do you guys see like just how amazing that is, how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament was talking about, everything that they're looking for. So unfortunately, we can't dwell on that too long. We got to move on for the sake of time, but that's just like really cool.